0: From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, sponsored
1: by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. fresh back from the Air and Space Forces Association's annual Aerospace Warfare Symposium. Uh, for the first time in Denver, Colorado, Byron Callan of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners joins us. First, four takeaways from the show, and we'll also hear from the 22nd Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force, General CQ Brown Jr., on changing the services culture, and 7th Air Force Commander, Lieutenant General Scott Rolls Ployce, on the evolving challenge that is North Korea. And it's all made possible by GE Aerospace.
0: Maintaining U.S. air superiority means 30% more range, 20% greater acceleration, and twice the cooling for the F 35. The GE Aerospace XA-100 engine is tested and ready to deliver these strategic capabilities. Learn more at geaerospace.com XA-100.
1: And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII. Sponsor our global coverage, Fortress Information Security. Sponsors our weekly cyber report, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sponsors our strategy coverage and ultra intelligence and communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage. And don't miss our other weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello,
0: and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information
1: Security and hosted by, hey, it's Vago Meradian. And our coverage from the Aerospace Warfare Symposium was sponsored by GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and Helicon Chemical. And speaking of AWS, Byron joins us now from
0: the road. Byron, a show full of news, which uh, the AWS isn't always. What has stood out in particular to you about the last couple of days?
2: Well, I think clearly, JJ, just the timing of the show, because it's, it's on the eve of the FY24 budget release, and that was, I think, aptly previewed by Secretary Kendall. Uh, you know, we now know there are going to be more F-35s in the FY24 budget. Um, we've got to wait for some of the details next week. But everything from munitions, war stock reserves, um, you know, additional E-7s, um, I, I think the the, the framing was, was pretty good and pretty timely for the show. Um, the... The CCA uh program got a call out here. Uh and I think that I was just a there was a breakout session at the show that I listened to part of of that uh particular program. I think that's gonna be interesting. Tanker um Secretary Kendall's comments on uh hey, we don't necessarily need another large civil uh platform. A civil airliner platform for, for future tanker, but this kind of pulls back to an RFI that the air force had put out, I guess, just after the new year, um, uh, looking for different ideas and, and that opens up some, some interesting opportunities, you know, secretary kendall called out a blended wing concept i'm personally highly skeptical that boeing is going to be able to develop a blended wing concept tanker uh for a 75 uh aircraft requirement although talking to people at the show you got the sense that it could be you're going to need a lot more than, than 75 of these things but i I, there, I think it's an interesting opportunity and one that uh it'll get feathered in later this decade but um but clearly some more movement in kind of how the Air Force is thinking about its tanker fleet.
0: And that tanker announcement is probably not good news for Lockheed Martin, who were hoping to get in on KCY, but also maybe not good news for Boeing, who were hoping to be able to uh, amortize their KC-46 costs and learning curve over another 179 aircraft rather than 75.
2: Yeah, and I would agree, J. but I just think it's kind of the it's been slow and coming. But I just think it's this dawning recognition that there really are only so many three thousand meter runways in the Indo Pacific uh, theater of operations, and uh, you know something as large and, and non stealthy as a, a large civil airliner uh, can be an inviting target in that kind of environment. So. Uh, when you talk about distributed logistics. uh, There's some interesting conceptual work, just talking to some people at the show here about what this kind of new tanker fleet might look like. Um, It will be distributed, and and that raises a question about, well, you have a tanker fleet, how are you going to get the fuel to the tankers themselves? But there's movement here. (laughs) And again, I think it just reflects if there was a a sub-theme, you know that really came out of Secret- secretary kendall's imperatives it's you know the the air force in particular really is moving more towards i don't, I don't a war footing is is too strong a, a a construct but i think they're moving to a footing where they really are much more cognizant of the challenges that they're going to face um, in the Indo-Pacific campaign, it, it, first, you know, if you can if you can build these capabilities that successfully deter China, great. Um, but you know, if you have to fight, then uh, then then some of the things that made a lot of sense five, ten, fifteen years ago don't make sense in the context of what you'd be looking at in the late twenty twenties and twenty thirties.
0: Vago, in our conversation with Secretary Kendall, you spent a good bit of time discussing his work on getting the Air Force to into a more of a war fighting mindset. And that's come up in a couple of our conversations since then. What did you hear about that message at the show? Or what were the other messages that were coming to you from industry and
1: from Air Force leadership? Look, I mean, I I first second everything that Byron said and and, uh, Andrew Hunter, the Air Force Acquisition Executive, when he met with reporters. And I have to say, this is a terrific conference in part because of its intimacy. It's not as big. Uh, as uh, the big September uh, airspace cyber. Uh, the leadership is all here. They tend to be accessible. And the Air Force does a terrific job in terms of getting all of those leaders uh, in front of uh, reporters. Indeed, it's a challenge, especially in such a short amount of time, because you have to debate whether or not you know you want to hear uh, Grinch, uh, Grinkevich or uh, Scorch Hecker, uh, the, the AFSENT uh, and uh, the USAFI, or I'm going to listen to Cruiser Willsbach or or be you know um, you know on the show floor or elsewhere. So they're going to fix that by by extending the show by a couple of days. I think the the message of war fighting focus. You know the the back to back addresses by Frank Kendall and C.Q. Brown were a powerful one two punch. Anybody who was in that room uh, was first electrified uh, by it, but I think second understood that the senior leadership's mind is, is their focus is on improving warfighting capabilities. And what I think the interesting thing, the interesting way that the Air Force is approaching this is, uh, as opposed, I think, to the way the Marine Corps has, which is a more directed, this is where we're gonna go, is here are the things that we need to do. Let's get everybody harnessed to do those things and do the warfighting experimentation, do this in a disciplined process, look at whether or not, as Andrew said, for example, uh, uh, about the the new tanker, is whether our old plan of X, Y, and Z is fit for purpose, given where we're going, as Byron mentioned, right? The low observability, the ability to operate more forward. These aircraft are gonna have to do more things uh, from more places, farther closer, you know, much closer to the action, uh, especially as we go to a world with 200 NGADs. That was an interesting number uh, that the secretary put out uh, and then said each one of those would have a number of CCAs. I think he said, Byron, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, two or three CCAs per airplane yeah. and then 300 F-35s that would get coded in the first block, right? Each one of which would carry several CCAs as well. Um, so that shows that CCA, the collaborative combat aircraft program is going to be something far larger. And then when you talk to each one of the numbered Air Force commanders or the major, uh, the MAGCOM major command commanders, you got a sense that every single one of them is focused on fixing all of the problems and how they contribute to the whole, which was very empowering and empowering, and I have to say reminiscent to the sort of change. I think, you know, even though this is an air power program podcast, we're talking about a master army aviator in the form of Jim McConville, who's been driving the same sort of Innovation within the confines of his force, right? So it's an exciting thing to see each of the services working the problems that they face to be able to be ready for that highest intensity warfighting. And both the boldness of the statements made in terms from leadership, but the nuance with which, for example, Secretary Kendall and the chief, uh, General Brown, are trying to work this at an individual level to you know, reinvigorate the Air Force's culture of innovation and then empower folks to fix the, you know, to to be more hands-on as opposed to being top-down directive, more bottom up in terms of you know what the problems are. I'm setting the big focus items on what it is we need to do collectively, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you how to do each and every single little thing. I'm going to take the impediments out of your way to empower you. And I th- and I think that, that that was a very powerful message. To me, one of the most powerful messages that came through.
2: I think one of the interesting things that I found were some of the emissions at the conference. Uh, Secretary Kendall didn't mention the the Russia-Ukraine war. Are there any lessons to be learned from that? Um, There was very little discussion about the problems the industrial base is facing ramping production up and these ridiculously long production life cycles uh, to build everything from precision-guided weapons to combat aircraft. And finally, there is really very little commentary about inflation and inflationary pressures that the department is feeling in its budget, uh, which I think is intriguing as well, too.
0: Byron, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Thanks a lot, JJ. Thank you, Vago.
0: Vago, unfortunately, I couldn't join you at AWS, so you had all the fun, starting with your conversation with the chief.
1: JJ, you were really missed and look forward to you definitely joining us uh, next time around. As we discussed at AWS, both uh, Secretary Kendall and uh, the Chief General Brown gave rousing addresses uh, about the importance of air power and the need to rapidly improve capabilities to deter and, if necessary, beat adversaries uh, like China. For General Brown, a key is fundamental culture change to yield a force that's more agile and better able to harness innovation and do so quickly. Since taking office, he's been driving the message that the choice is either accelerate change or lose, and I think there he's spot on the mark. Uh, As he puts it, change is uncomfortable, but it's better to be uncomfortable than not change fast enough, as time is the critical element. Since his uh, tenure uh, at PACAF, whether on or off the record, uh, we've been having conversations about culture change, uh, and his aim of setting big war fighting goals for the force but then empowering and helping airmen to solve the problems that stand in their way so that they can accelerate change at every level. In those discussions, General Brown has always been passionate about, uh, obviously, the Air Force, about airmen, about change, and leadership's role in driving change. Here is our latest conversation from AWS. Sir, thanks so very much. It's always an honor and pleasure uh, seeing you, especially now in uh, sunny Denver. It is good to be here in Denver and be here for the Air and Space Forces Association here in 2023. Uh, exactly. And obviously, the Aerospace Warfare Symposium has moved out here to be closer to the space community at a key time. It was a great address today, sir, where you made the case for air power and continue to make the case for change. And, you know, one of the lines that you've used often is, you know, you know change is uncomfortable, but you'd rather people be uncomfortable then lose uh, at the end of the day because that's the stakes, and we heard that message from uh, Secretary Kendall as well. You've been working this problem hard since the day you started as chief, and indeed, we're thinking about it from even when you bef- uh, before chief. You were working some of these issues when you were at PACAF as well. Talk to us a little bit about how it's going. What are the things that are working? What are the things that are not? What are what are the things that are going to need a lot more work? Bob, I think that the areas I see working is it, it is uh,
3: connecting with our force. And they understand the need for change and they're willing to challenge the status quo. Uh, I think by the way I talk about this, uh, those that wanna challenge the status quo know that I have, uh, have their back. And that's been helpful because there's things I can do at a more senior level, big Air force, but there's things, a lot of things can happen at a lower level. And I think they, they really do appreciate th- that aspect. I think anytime you're driving change, and we talk about uh, you know, people's comfort zone, And even trying to make people uncomfortable, we always gravitate back to our comfort zone. And so part of that is putting pressure on ourselves to drive people to be uncomfortable as you're doing change. The key part there is is how do you get them to buy in to what we're changing to? And part of it is how you engage, how you dialogue, how you listen to their ideas, because their ideas contribute to the change you're trying to achieve. And if they feel like they have a vested interest because they have put an effort into it, they've had a chance to voice their opinions about it, provide some advice and some of that is taken, then it helps to move that forward. I fully realize when you're driving change, you're gonna have what I call pockets of resistance. Uh, But how do you bring in those pockets of resistance into the room to have the conversation? Because there's some things we do agree on. There may be several things we disagree about. I'm of the mindset, if you bring folks in, you have a conversation, so you're talking to each other, not past each other, find what I call the Venn diagram, where you can't agree, and then you can build that relationship so you start to break down the areas where you disagree where you have uh, some of those friction points.
1: There's a debate about whether there's a frozen middle or not. Um, There are those who say there is a frozen middle, and in fact, structurally, we may be a self-freezing organization in some ways. How do you look at that, right? Are there structural impediments that you're looking at? Because you're looking at all of the pieces of this, right? Bureaucratic, organizational, operational, structural, that could be impediments to change. Are there things that can be done structurally so that the chief 20 years from now has an easier time of it.
3: you know, I don't know. Uh, I think part of it is human nature. I don't know that it's a frozen middle. It's more of a frozen maze. And, and the reason I say that is because at different levels you'll have different individuals that they don't like feeling uncomfortable, and they get used to it. And so what you got to do is figure out how to navigate through that, because I think at every level you can find those that buy into what you're trying to get done. I think the key part there is, is how do you build some success? And I, I really believe that success breeds success. And you, you can start really big and say, okay, I wanna change the world. Or you can start small in certain areas with the vision of changing the world. But how do you take those first steps? And as people start to see that you're able to make some progress, then that maze, you know, the lanes of the maze open up more and more. At the same time, you're able to figure out those that, that get it and can help move things forward. And those that are still you know, kind of stuck and idea is what you want to do is make the lanes so wide that those that get it are more outweigh those that don't get it, where those that want to slow, slow things down,
1: it's a speed bump versus a, a brick wall. Um, the promotion system is a good way to do that, right? The force looks at it and goes, hey, wait a minute, CQ did that, he got promoted, I want to do some more of that. Vago's a dud, he didn't get promoted, don't do that. Do you think that it's, this is being reflected in the promotion system on who's getting promoted thereby rewarding the role models for taking prudent risks driving thoughtful change
3: um I, well i do think it's it's changing I mean, i think you, you got to think through though is that we just just a few years ago went and changed to our developmental categories which allows us to develop our officers uh, a little bit differently than we have in the past our chief master of the air force joe bass is also looking at on the enlisted side as well and so the path i took doesn't exist anymore in, in some aspects because you don't have some of the below the zones we had before so our, our airmen and our, particularly our officers are gonna get developed a bit differently. They're gonna have greater opportunities. And we did the same thing on our general officer side. Uh, we're not moving quite as fast. So there's more time to develop. And by having developmental categories, not everybody has to develop in the same way. And it gives it a bit more flexibility to really tap into the the, the broad talent of our force. And uh, I start to see that as we, we start to move forward, where it's not a one size you know, fits all or one size fits most. We can actually, Still have the, you know, our core values, are what we what we value, but at the same time look at you know, how we develop parts of the Air Force to ensure uh, we have a very well organized team of individuals with different skill sets, and they can le- you know leverage and work off of each other's uh, skill sets versus you know trying to make everyone look like typically it
1: was our operational career fields. We have a bit more flexibility now. You know, the more you change, the more you want to change, right? And the change process itself. Um, I I was just in Silicon Valley, and there's been some criticism. You know, there's AfWorks, there's NavalX, there's DIU, you know, and all of these, there's a sense that work against it, whereas some of the folks out there were saying, no, the more there is, the more people are inspired by it, they're touched by it, they understand there are different ways of doing it. So it actually, while it seems like innovation theater, could actually have a positive outcome at, at, at the end of the day. From your standpoint, the more you change, the more you need to change. Are you already noticing that this is bearing fruit on multiple different levels as you go through the process?
3: I I am. And um, as you do some of this, you you want to get to a point where it normalizes. I mean, you have AFWRX, we have many of our innovation hubs, but there's a point where you don't want to be just a whole bunch of innovation hubs. How do you take that culture and just make it part of what we do and how we think about innovation and how we are able to move faster in certain areas? At the same time, as you're driving change, there's also some things that you probably want to have endure and that's the part you got to think through as well because every time someone comes with a good idea you got to you got to weigh the the cost risk benefit to you know if we're going to change it again why are we changing I really believe that the things you have to take a look at are the facts and assumptions in the environment that you're operating in and as you do that you always continue to assess the facts and assumptions in the environment if the facts assumptions and environment haven't changed then you probably don't need to change but there may be some things that actually do change and how big they change will determine whether or not you have to take the next step to be able to, to move forward. And so there's good parts to it because it helps to build culture. Even when we talk about the, you know, folks talk about the innovation theater, it's actually going through the steps to understand. You may not be producing things, but you actually understand the steps to get there. But at some point, you got to get out of theater and, and really get into producing and putting capability into the hands of our airmen.
1: When you look at what you've been trying to execute you were a junior officer at a time when tony mcpeak was changing the entire air force you worked for ron fogelman as chief uh, who was trying to drive some of those and and take those sort of pioneering achievements and normalize them in the force tweak them uh, adjust them his big focus was on leadership right we have to get away from a management uh total quality mindset to an actual leadership mindset Uh, service before self was was one of his big things what are some of the inspirations, uh, the innovators that helped shape you that are in turn shaping how you've approached the job? Well, uh, general Fogman,
3: you know, I spent nearly two years with him as his aide, And, uh, I think being an aide, you know, there's a lot of things you do. There can be drudgery, but the opportunity to be a, a fly on the wall multiple times to hear our senior leader and, 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 get some of the insights and be able to sometimes to ask a couple of questions, you know, Sir, how did you make that decision? What was going on in the background? Or talk to someone who was in the room, um, a little more senior than me, to help explain. Uh, it's those kinds of things that uh, you know, I picked up on it, not just from, from General Fulgham, but uh, I think I've tried to take away something from everybody I work with, whether they work more senior than me, more junior, or my peers, and put all those into my toolkit. And uh, there's things that um, i learn learned from everybody I work with. The things I learn about myself when I walk through different things I do. I mean, even you know, the speech I gave today, there's things I learned about myself as I go through this and work with a team that are willing to give me feedback as I go through this and now you could say that better. There's another way to do this. And they'd be willing to take that in. That's what helps develop leaders. I think about myself as a learning leader. I study leadership, the podcast I listen to are on leadership, most books I read are about leadership. I, just, I'm, I, I enjoy leading, but I also enjoy learning how to lead. Because as I said earlier, you know, facts and assumptions change, the world changes. And the facts and assumptions that
1: I deal with dealt with as a captain are different from what I deal with now as the Chief of Staff of the Air Force. So how do you get out of the bubble, right? I mean, so there were podcasts uh, are, are one way of doing it. Uh, thanks for the plug, uh, plug for podcast, by the way. Uh, what, are, what are some ways you break out of that bubble and, and help reset your needles because at the end of the day, right, every leader can end up becoming, you know, stuck in a bubble, even if they're trying hard to sort of look outside the bubble. Well, it's, um, it's how I engage. And, um, and what I value is diverse
3: opinions. And so uh, whether it's, uh, you know, in, in the office when we're working, I like to bring in different people with different voices. I, I try to watch body language when I'm in meetings because I can sense when someone feels uncomfortable and wants to say something. And then I'll call on them. And then sometimes even I'll call on folks, even they may say, I have nothing to say, but then they go, then they start talking, which means they they, they really did have something they they had an opinion. I also try to engage with those that are outside of the military and build relationships. One of the things that Shereen and I, uh, my wife had done for a number of years was not live on base. And we try to build comu- you know relationships in, in, in the community to get to know other people, which provides us different perspectives than uh, those we work with day in and day out. And there's been some pluses to that. And we still I mean, we live on base today, because we, we kind of have to, but we still try to do that same thing to build a network of people outside of the military that helps us see ourselves a little bit differently. Uh, as we get the feedback, or we talk to them about the military, I think it helps them to understand what, about our Air Force, about our Airmen. And then I think the one thing I really value is when I travel and I have a lunch or breakfast with 10 or 12 Airmen, no leadership in the room, I just get a chance to talk to them, uh, get to ask them questions. They get to ask me questions. I, I get a good sense of you know what's on their mind by the questions they ask, and then I you know b- based on the questions I ask, I get to learn about them. And every one of those is memorable because there's always a uh, a story that makes me just a little bit smarter because of something they share with me. And again, it it makes me it makes me a better leader. I'd say whether it's you know those in uniform or those in the community that I've had a chance to engage with
1: so what are some of the things they're telling you when you talk to them what are the most important things to them one of the questions I ask every time is what do you want from your leadership
3: and the resounding answer is I want my leadership to know me as a person and care about me that's pretty simple and uh, not every leader can do that and we also you know you realize you you got we have a mission to do but there's the little things you have to stop and do, and I personally have to think about it on a regular basis because I'm I'm an introvert, so it's it's easy for me not to say anything. I've got to constantly think about, you know, how do I show my appreciation to the team when when things are going well, and then be able to give feedback. So you know, they don't always want to hear, "Hey, this didn't work out so well." It's how do you how do you have a conversation with them? And I think knowing them as a person, but I also want them to know me as a person. And uh, the thing I talk about often is that. You know, I'm just CQ Brown. I'm just an ordinary person. I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I'm a son, I'm a brother. But I have an extraordinary opportunity. And I think for anybody who has an opportunity like this, it's what do you do with it? And, uh, you know, I wanna use, you know, what I'm able to do for good, to make our Air Force better, to make our nation better, and to make every one of our Airmen and their families better to the
1: best of my ability. Let me ask you uh, a last question on lasting change. Uh, You and Secretary Kendall have been very focused, right, he's trying to do some of these reforms on the civilian side as you try to do them on the military side. Talk to us a little bit about the cross-connect between what he's doing, what you're doing, and how you ultimately believe you set this up for long-term success, right? You said you want it to become foundational. You're a tough grader on what it is you're getting right and what it is uh, you're getting wrong. My
3: staff told me I was grading myself too hard.
1: Um, I need to take more credit for uh, what we do. I'll just
3: tell you, I'm pretty humble about things. You know, I don't, the thing I think about and the things I'm doing as the chief of staff of the Air Force, I really do not care if my name's on it. What I do care is that it lasts. The things that we do are enduring. There are things I know I've done. I can walk around the Air Force and there's things I've done I know I've done that I can walk around and see, even here today, that many of the airmen have no idea that I was the one that actually put that into motion, and I really don't care about that. I think the key part that I look at is there's three kind of criteria, and I use this when we talked about diversity and inclusion, but I think it applies many other ways as well. The things we do have to be meaningful, they have to be sustainable, and they have to be enduring. And so it's gotta mean something to our airmen. If we put something in place, it's gotta be something where they go, God, that that actually, that makes a difference, versus I have no idea why they're doing that. It just creates more pain for me. It's gotta be meaningful. It's got to be sustainable. And if it requires some level of resources, we have to put the resources behind it. It's kind of putting your money where your mouth is. And then it's got to be enduring. It's got to be something that resonates so well that no matter who comes in behind me, it'll still be here. If we do it and it's, you know, as soon as C.K. Brown leaves, they go, okay, we're changing. Then, you know, it begs the question of, was it enduring? Now, if the facts and assumptions change, OK, I got that. But if it's going to change it's because of, you know, from a personal perspective, that, that's a different story. But th- those three criteria, I think, are the key points that when you're driving and trying to do change, if you use that kind of metric, it helps you. To, you're just not changing because you can. You're changing
1: you know, for the better good that's going to be around for the long term. Isn't inspiration the number one element of that, though?
3: Um, I mean, there's aspects. I mean, they're inspiration for me personally because you, you feel like you're doing something, but it's also inspiration in the feedback I get from our airmen when you do things and they go, hey, thank you. That was – and it's and it's when I'm just walking – I mean, it's, it's happened here today. I walk around and someone says, thank you for what you're doing to help us do X, Y, or Z. You came and you, out you. You were my wing commander or you were – and what you said or did made a real difference for me. I mean, all that – and you don't come into leadership just because you want to get those accolades, but that validates some of the things you're trying to get done. Now, at the same token, there's probably a bunch of other people that are maybe saying separate things. And one of the things I've talked about with leadership, there's a quote from Winston Churchill, criticism is like pain in the body. It shows the natural state of things. And that's, that's a paraphrase of the quote. And what I talk about, if you're in position of leadership, you're dinner table conversation at somebody's house every night, Okay. And it's going to be, you know, General Brown did great, or I cannot believe what General Brown just did. It really impacts me in a, in a negative way. And if you're in leadership, you've got to be okay with that. But you want to have more that say what General Brown did was great or what it, that, that leader did for me was great versus those that, that criticize it. I think the key point for me is if I look in the mirror and I know in my heart of hearts I did what was right. That's what's important. And, uh, you know, I can get that validated here and there by an airman that comes and says something to me. I'll just tell you, Vago, there's times where they'll come to me about it. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily remember exactly what I said or what I did. Let me, let me tell you a quick story. And so the chief master of the Air Force and I were really talking a lot about it, allowing our airmen to cross-train. And if an airman wants to cross-train, their career full should not hold them back. Because if they don't get the cross train, they're probably going to separate from Air Force, from their career field, and they're in another career field that wants to do the same cross train, and I want to have a little bit more flexibility in uh, cross training. And so we were at Al back in January, and uh, there was a young uh, airman who was a uh, photographer, and uh, I just finished dinner with uh, some company grade officers, and he came up to me and says, "General, I need to tell you something." And so of course. Nine times out of ten, when it's something like that, it's typically a, there's a problem they want me to solve, or put something on my plate that uh, to make me aware of. And uh, he came up to me and said, "You know, General Brown, um, I wanted to, I was working in maintenance. I've wanted to cross train in the public affairs. And because of either something I said, memo I signed, they told him initially he couldn't cross train. And he said, General Brown said that I can cross train. He took that in, and they allowed him cross train." and he's going to reenlist. Those are, I mean, that's the big picture, but it's, that validates that we were doing the right thing. And so it's, it's those little stories like that that really, you know, you, do it, you look in the mirror and you go, okay, that, 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 that's a, you know, mark one up for making, you know, positive change for our Airmen, and then realize there's probably another Airmen, you know, numbers
1: of Airmen going through the same thing that hopefully have that same experience. Sir? Thanks so very much. Uh, It's always an honor and pleasure uh, talking to you. Look forward to talking to you again. And uh, best of luck on what is a very important uh, endeavor. And I commend to our audience to to listen to your remarks about air power because I think they were right on the mark. Thanks so very much, sir. Thanks, Bago. My pleasure. And
0: a word from our air and naval coverage sponsor Helicon Chemical is solving the military's biggest pain point range in conventional and hypersonic domains using their patented binder technology. They offer the ability to upgrade legacy missiles by combining the stability of solid rocket fuel with the performance of a liquid propellant. Learn more at HeliconChemical.com. And now, here's Vago's conversation with Lieutenant General Scott Ployce, 7th Air Force Commander and Deputy Commander United States Forces Korea.
1: Sir, thanks very much for joining us, and I'm very glad that we can make this meeting happen because I'm sorry I couldn't visit you uh, in Korea. Well, you're always welcome to come over anytime you want. Uh, thanks very much. I'm going to take you up uh, on that. North Korea is among the most belligerent nations uh, in the world. It's it's not only highly aggressive, it's a nuclear-armed uh, nation that, that regularly does missile tests, and it's about to do uh, another series of nuclear tests, uh, or at least that's the concern. You know, as the world's attention gets drawn to what's happening in Russia and Ukraine or what the Chinese are up to, what is it we need to remember about North Korea and its behavior? I think the thing that,
4: at least from my standpoint in Seventh Air Force, is really the fact that we are not in a state of peace. We're in an armistice. Seventy years ago this year, we signed the armistice, not ending the Korean War, but putting the, the Korean War into an armistice state. And so for a lot of people, they, they kind of forget the fact that we are actually in, an, in a state of war in Korea. The, the threat is real. The threat is available every single day. And we have a saying over in Korea, it's uh, we have to have the ability to fight tonight. Because if North Korea decides to be provocative or be aggressive and end the armistice by either provocation or a full-scale conflict, we have to be available today to fight with whatever I have available on the peninsula. And so I, I think that's where I would go with that is it's, it's all about the realization that we are still at a state of war in the Korean Peninsula. And the South Korean government is fully aware of that. Uh, and frankly, our allies, the Japanese, are just as aware of that as well.
1: Um, let me go a little bit more into the threat. Famine is pervasive in the North. Mm-hmm. Um, there are all sorts of leadership questions. Kim Jong-un is promoting, I mean, certainly his sister is very prominent, and he's pr- starting to promote his 13-year-old daughter, mm-hmm. which is kind of a very interesting uh, feature. There are increasing uh, numbers of more sophisticated tests that demonstrate capability. And then we expect a round of nuclear tests. From your standpoint, what are the next elements of capability you think uh, the North Koreans uh, are going to be displaying, testing? And what does it mean for your ability and the alliance's ability to continue to deter them?
4: Well, I think, I mean, I don't know necessarily what he's doing next. I can tell you that if you look back on what he's done over the last year, you would see that he has shot more missiles in 2022 than all of the missiles that have been shot previously to 19 or to 2022. So I think what he's doing is he's trying to ramp up his order on the world stage. And I think the idea, as you have watched the missiles go from really, you know, short range ballistic missiles, artillery rounds, those kinds of things, to highly lofted intercontinental ballistic missile test research and capability demonstrations. What he's trying to do is he is trying to show the world, not just the United States, but the world, that he deserves a seat at the world table. With that in mind, a test, uh, you know, a seventh test of, of his nuclear capabilities would be unbelievably unstabilizing to not just the region, but really to the entire world. And any opportunities that he may seek to take advantage of that, of, of utilizing that, in, in other words, for worldwide attention, if you will, I think is going to fail miserably if he were to do something like that. I obviously don't know what the next technology that he's going to do, but I think it's, I can see that he is going to continue to be provocative, not just to the South Korean-US alliance, but also to bring our allies and partners in. That also means Japan, obviously that means continental United States. Um, Hawaii, Guam, and then you know even conceivably other er- other areas. I mean, it, it is conceivable with an ICBM that can range 6,000 miles. We'll put a 6,000-mile ring around North Korea, that could means that he could hold other allies
1: in the South China Sea at risk as well. Does the development of, say, hypersonic capability or anything in particular that they're doing that keeps you up at night?
4: Honestly, there's nothing that keeps me up at night. And from, from my standpoint, As the 7th Air Force Commander and the Deputy Commander for U.S. Forces Korea, my real responsibility on a day-to-day basis is to, number one, make sure that we deter North Korean aggression. Our job is to uphold the armistice, and that is our number one responsibility. And I think we do it very, very well, most notably by just the fact of our readiness training that we do each and every day, specifically with the South Koreans, but then again with the Japanese more and more. the next thing our job is, is if North Korea were to attack, we must be able to defend. And that gets back to that kind of fight tonight comment that I made a little earlier. And we have got the forces in place on the peninsula 24 hours a day, seven days a week to do that. The last part of that is then the actual be able to defeat anybody that were to come south. So if the North Koreans finally were to violate the armistice and enter into a full-fledged war, my ability now to defeat them. And I think from a U.S. standpoint, Department of Defense standpoint, again, I have no concerns over that. We are the best trained forces in the entire world. We've got 28,500 soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, plus their family members that are on the peninsula. So it is obviously in our best interest to make sure that we are ready to fight and to be able to deter and then defend and defeat at the end of the day. And that doesn't keep me up at night. The things that that do uh, make me worried, frankly, are what the kind of destabilization provocations that North Korea could do that may affect the overall stable stability of the Asian continents, right? Uh, long history between China, Korea, and Russia, but you also then must bring in some of the first island chain and the second island chain countries with their backgrounds, with uh, specifically in this case, the Chinese.
1: Uh, let me uh, take you to uh, that question. Last week was uh, an extraordinary and historic uh, week. Um, Obviously, tensions between Seoul and Tokyo are historic and long-running. And yet, the two countries appear to be moving to uh, another uh, level uh, in their relationship, and the United States has been fostering this for many decades, to become allies and partners as democracies, uh, as opposed to historic uh, adversaries. And Seoul's view of China is changing given that Beijing has used North Korea as something of a distraction. It violates uh, sanctions uh, on a daily basis, Um, and and yet the North Korean people are still uh, starving. Ultimately, what is the alliance model here? Because historically, it's been the United States and South Korea against North Korea, whereas now we're trying to build alliances of alliances, both to stand up against China, and to stand up against Russia, and to stand up against North Korea. Talk to us about what this uh, new development means in terms of the long-term security, not just on the Korean Peninsula, but in the broader Asia Pacific.
4: Uh, Obviously, what you're talking about is the reparations for the comfort women, frankly, a a spark point between the two countries. The U.S. has worked very closely with both of them to try and get them to a, a mutual understanding and then allow them to Understand that they've got their differences, but then that we need to move forward as a trilateral alliance. The recent, you know, specifically ICBM tests by North Korea have really, I think, caused the the unification of that trilateral alliance. In the past, a bilateral alliance between the U.S. and Japan and then the U.S. and Korea makes a de facto trilateral alliance, but it's not truly a trilateral alliance. And The only way we're going to be able to deter uh, North Korea from doing anything further is we're going to have to come together. And I think the current administration in Korea and the current administration in Japan have come to that realization that they need to foster that relationship at this point. I can't speak on behalf of you know, the Korean pe- president or the prime minister in, in, uh, in Japan as to why today you know, or why last week they decided to make that decision. But we as the United States, at least those stationed in Korea, are very thankful that they were able to reach at least some sort of a mutual agreement. The good news is, from a military standpoint, we've already established those relationships in the past. Again, that kind of a false trilateral US-Japan, US-Korea, and then we kind of bridge the gap. You have seen in the past few weeks and in the past few months, for that matter, some trilateral exercises specifically for ballistic missile defense by using Aegis cruisers from both Japan, Korea, and the United States in the uh, EC and to be able to show that we have that ability to come together, so as long as the two countries can come together at the national level, I think we've already got in place a network that will allow that trilateral alliance to truly, really blossom.
1: Let me ask you a: um, I want to get to concept uh, developments because you guys really have been on the sharp end of the spear. Uh, so even though there were wars in Iraq and Afghanistan going on, your guys' head was in a very high-intensity uh, war fight. What are some of the lessons? that you're learning uh, and the team is dissecting from what we're seeing in Russia's war against Ukraine. Artillery heavy, uh, you're going to be on the receiving end of something like 20,000 North Korean barrels uh, that will uh, intend to rain down uh, on Seoul, uh, causing untold devastation. It's also a nuclear-armed uh, state. What are some of the lessons you're taking for this and, and, and the lessons you think more people more broadly should be learning?
4: Well, I think probably the first, that the first thing I would take out of the Ukraine situation is that air superiority is absolutely an imperative. I mean, that sounds a little pejorative to say, right, because I'm an Air Force officer and, I, and that, that's the way I was brought up. But I think it has proven time and time again that without air superiority, you end up in some sort of a kind of grinding trench warfare, World War II, Korea War fight. And that's obviously not what would happen if North Korea were to do that today. And so we are postured and ready for our ability to come in and very, very quickly establish air superiority over the Korean theater of operations if required to. At the end of the day, that's all about stopping the devastation that North Korea is going to be able to rain down, as you mentioned, into Seoul and the very densely populated areas uh, on the north side of, of South Korea. I think the second thing is never underestimate world regard for people that are in the right. And in this case, Russia was wrong, Ukraine was right, and the, the entire world has turned against Russia in the way that they have come after them and not provided them any any support but yet they supply provide all the support for the ukrainians i think the north koreans would face the exact same thing everybody would know that they were in this case the agitator they were the ones that did it no matter what they say and that they would have the entire world order turned against them not just those in asia but pretty much from a world order the interesting thing that i i think you have to look at is from the north korean standpoint what they may be learning from their foray into nuclear weapons, or at least their ability to test nuclear weapons, is looking at Russia. And while Russia has threatened nuclear weapons in Ukraine, it has been very unsuccessful on the world stage. And if they then play that forward in their own mind and say, well, we are going to threaten nuclear weapons in in that stage, what I said originally of the world order turning against them for, a, you know, for being the, the, the agitator in this case, imagine now a nuclear weapon were to be utilized in what we would consider a conventional war. What would happen to their country from an international standpoint?
1: Uh, how much of North, uh, deterring North Korea is continuing to deter uh, China? You're a key member of the Indo-Pacific uh, team. China is a protagonist not just more broadly in terms of its uh, territorial claim, its increasing bullying, its use of economic uh, pressure. Uh, Again, we saw the China hearing uh, last week, uh, which was fascinating in terms of sort of framing the case of a malign Chinese activity. Your command is 300 miles uh, from uh, Beijing, uh, if you look at a map, which I think would uh, surprise many people. How do we need to be thinking more broadly about deterrence and more broadly about continuing to deter and influence China, which is increasingly blaming us for its problem. Yeah,
4: so the interesting thing about, you know, the Korean Peninsula is that we traditionally see a, a map of Korea, and it looks a lot like a map of Florida, which is a peninsula with a land border on the north, water on three sides, and that is how every Korean map I've ever seen in my life. What, what you don't realize is half an inch on the, mor- on the margin on the left-hand side is mainland China half an inch on the margin on the right hand side is Japan. And that border on the north is not Georgia and Alabama, it's Russia and China. And I think that is probably why we've come to this realization most recently, is that we have always viewed it like Florida in that, ma- in that mindset. Your, your comment is absolutely right. It's 300 miles from Osan Air Base due west, and I'm on the Chinese mainland. 699 miles
1: and I can be in Beijing. So the idea here... Uh, ap- apologies for getting the math wrong on that, by the way.
4: You're, you're right with the 300. Uh, but the idea here is we are, we, are, we are on the Asian continent. And I think, again, back to my, my visual picture of what Florida looks like. When we talk China, 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 the very first thing we talk about is first island chain, second island chain. I'm on the Asian continent. Nobody's 300 miles from the Chinese mainland except I am. And so I think from a deterrent standpoint, specifically in a competition, a day-to-day competition with China, the forces that are stationed in Korea are assigned to U.S. Indo-PACOM. And those forces can be utilized as any way that the Indo-PACOM commander wants to utilize us. I think in a day-to-day competition standpoint, the Chinese are paying attention to what we're doing. And so I think that is a deterrent. The fact, again, that we are on the Asian continent, that is a deterrent to China my question back to you would be, or my hypothesis here is, how much influence does China have over North Korea today? If North Korea can hold South Korea, Japan, and the US at bay, they can also hold the Chinese at bay. As I mentioned, if you draw a circle around the outside of it, and they can hold Vietnam, they can hold the Philippines, they can hold Thailand, they can also hold mainland China with a ICBM. I don't know what that has done to change up their relationship, but it's at least something to think about.
1: That is an interesting point, right, because they can hold a lot of countries uh, at risk. But there is this sense that China can exert pressure on North Korea when it wants to, but that it often doesn't want to. I mean, do you get a sense that—because, you know, all of those antics take up bandwidth. You've got to focus up on that corner of the world. Uh, Your host country, for example, wants you to be focused on that, right? So war game after war game, South Korea has a tendency of being like, hey, uh, you guys aren't moving these airplanes out of here, right? Because we're not going to take risk. And then every war game, the Chinese have a tendency of creating or or working with the North Koreans for a provocation. Do you still get that sense that they are integrated and that they would somehow get involved in a crisis on the side of the North Koreans as they did during the Korean War?
4: Oh, that's a lot to unpack right there. So the first thing is China obviously still exerts some control over that. Again, my hypothesis is how much control do they actually have? If you back this up 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, I think you would argue that they, they were basically a puppet master. And then whatever they told North Korea to do, they did. I don't know necessarily how much power they have anymore. That being said, China still supplies all kinds of Material goods illegally against U.N. sanctions across the North Korean border um, in ship-to-ship transfers, all in violation of the U.N. resolutions. And so it's obvious that they are dependent upon one another. I think China has come to realize that maybe they don't have that much power, or at least cannot exert as much power as they had in the past over um, KJU and the regime. Is it in you know China's best interest to you know supply the North Koreans with whatever they need to kind of you know, again kind of hold the U.S. forces that are stationed in South Korea you know at an arm's length? I, th- I think it is. I mean, just from a military standpoint, if I were to mirror myself into that position, I would say, yeah, that probably makes sense. Keeping us focused on North Korea and not focused on them. The interesting thing, though, that you have to at least consider is what would happen if they were to provoke North Korea to a point that they then were to attack. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not North Korea that makes the decision, it's China that made the decision to push the North Koreans, hey, it's time for you to go. In other words, where, where's the motivation at that point for KJU and his regime? and where's the backing, right? That is, that I think is a, a much bigger conversation to have because now is it China that's actually doing the war or is
1: it North Korea that's doing the war? Um, and, and, and certainly uh, in, in the calculus of, uh, right, the, the most complex of problems is in fact uh, the, the Korea's. Um, let me ask you one uh, last question which is about the high-end warfight. As, as I mentioned, during Iraq and Afghanistan, there was one command that was still focused on the highest intensity of, of war fighting. What are some of the con ops you guys are developing? You guys are really a model for coalition uh, as well as joint force, right? I mean, when everybody's looking at JADC2, uh, even though General Grunkevich is, is doing some great work over there uh, in Afsent and CENTCOM is working on it, you guys have been working this problem uh, intensely for a long time. Talk to us a little bit about what you're doing on the high-intensity warfighting front and how your command can actually serve as a battle lab for the rest uh, of the Air Force and the Joint Force in terms of how you build up those uh, the sets and reps it takes to get to that high-end, 24-7 uh, readiness. I think uh,
4: in a couple of things that we've been able to do over, at least during the, th- the almost three years that I've been in Korea, are probably the easiest things to bring up. Number one is the return to live fly exercises, ground exercises, and uh, true interoperability at a coalition standpoint. I think that's probably the first. Uh, For the first two years I was there, that was not a thing. And now we're bringing those back. And and that shows not just about resolve. That also shows that we have the ability to fight together, right? And so the readiness is not readiness on the U.S. side, readiness on the Korean side. It's readiness as a total force at, at this point. The second thing that I would say is our ability to do multi-domain fires and multi-domain command and control. So non-kinetic fires combined with kinetic fires is something that we've really worked on over the last few years. I would say we're obviously looking forward to JADC2. We are working for, at least on the Air Force side, you know, an ABMS kind of a construct. We are dabbling on the outskirts of this. We've gotten moved moved the ball as far as we can down the field. And I think we're probably, We are pushing the boundaries on it right now because one of the things that we've always faced in that specifically in a multi-domain is the ability to share information across security channels. I think we've overcome a lot of those in the Korean Peninsula over the last three years. Our ability to now define what is releasable, what is not releasable from an ISR standpoint, also from just a command and control standpoint. And I think that that has really drawn us tighter together and can serve as as you mentioned as a battle lab that's probably the two things off the top of my head
1: sir thanks so very much for joining us it's a pleasure and uh, again uh, i look forward to uh, grabbing some good korean food with you soon yeah
4: thanks a lot vago thanks for
0: listening to the Air Power podcast and be sure to tell your friends a special thanks to ge aerospace for their generous support we'll be back next week